sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about uh, tightening restrictions on transgender athletes. Also going to be talking about how the government inside Israel appears to be crumbling at the moment. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, more news about the despicable actions of the Uvalde Police Department. CNN is reporting that a law enforcement source close to the investigation said that 11 officers, including Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arandondo, were inside Robb Elementary School within three minutes of when the gunman got in on May 24th. Now, this is after the revelations that were revealed in the last week that San Antonio Express News reported that video surveillance footage from the school did not show officers trying to open the door leading to the classrooms where the massacre was happening, even though they said they did. And the New York Times reported that two Uvalde city police officers told a sheriff's deputy that they passed up a fleeting chance to shoot the gunman while he was still outside the school because they were afraid they would hit children. Meanwhile, Vice reports that the city of Uvalde and and its police department are working with a private law firm to prevent the release of any recordings related to the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School, in which, of course, 19 children and two teachers died. According to a letter obtained by Motherboard in response to a series of public information requests that were made, Vice found out that the city lawyered up to keep the public records from being released. The public records Uvalde is trying to suppress include body camera footage, photos, nine calls, emails, text messages, criminal records, and more. Why is the police department using public funds to try to keep public records private, you might ask? Well, because according to the private attorneys, quote, the city and its police department want to be exempted from releasing a wide variety of records in part because it is being sued, in part because some of the records could include highly embarrassing information, in part because some of the information is not of legitimate concern to the public, in part because the information could reveal methods, techniques, and strategies for preventing and predicting crime. No, that's not it at all. In part, because some of the information may cause or may regard emotional, mental distress, and in part, because its response to the shooting is being investigated by the Texas Rangers, the FBI, and the Uvalde County District Attorney. Well, all of that, other than, you know, the fighting crime strategies and stuff, it's all because it's embarrassing and all of that information implicates the Uvalde Police Department in their malfeasance. And I bet you probably a little bit more than that. But it's a shame that the grieving families in Uvalde are finding out what we've known about policing in this country all along, that they don't care about the welfare of citizens. They do not exist, the police, to protect and serve the people, and they are not accountable to us What a horrible way to find out that the police really don't exist 
to serve and protect you. The U.S.-EU-NATO proxy war in Ukraine has taken another turn for the worse for the U.S., that is, with the capture of two Americans who were fighting with Ukraine by Russian forces. Kremlin Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov said Monday that the Geneva Conventions, which is a series of agreements on, among other things, international standards for the treatment of people captured during war, would actually not apply to the two Americans believed to have been captured by Russian or pro-Russian forces— because Peskov said that the two soldiers, the two men, appear to be soldiers of fortune, a.k.a. mercenaries, who were not enlisted in the Ukrainian army, which means, he said, that Russia does not believe they are protected under the Geneva Conventions. When pressed on whether Russia knows for sure that the two men were not members of the Ukrainian military, Peskov said that the matter will be investigated in due course. He also said that the two men, as a result of their supposed status as mercenaries, were involved in illegal activity, including firing on and shelling members of Russia's military. Now, concern is growing for the Americans since earlier this month, one Moroccan and two British fighters who had been captured by Russian forces were sentenced to death by firing squad for fighting alongside Ukrainian forces. The three men were tried and convicted in a Russian-backed separatist court in Donetsk, one of the two major regions in Ukraine's Donbass. Will the same fate meet the Americans? That remains to be seen. I would hope that the Russians are far more diplomatic and reasonable than the Americans and the Ukrainians have been, however. But maybe, just maybe, the smart people in Washington who marketed their proxy war in Ukraine as necessary to defeat the evil empire of Vladimir Putin might be thinking twice about their strategy today now that they have to manage the PR nightmare of having American mercenaries captured. And while the proxy war in Ukraine against Russia is not our fight, but is definitely blowing back on us domestically, the fight against transgender discrimination that we are seeing in politics and in sports is our fight, and we need to be in it and on the right side of humanity every day. No one should be subjected to physical examinations or chromosome testing or even accusations of not being female enough or not being female looking enough to compete in sports or even just to exist. And it's shocking to me that we're still having to argue against the advantages of biological maleness because I thought we settled that sexist trope. But it seems like some of us have too easily fallen back on sexism to deny someone else equality. None of us are free until all of us are free. And we have to fight for all of our freedom at home and abroad. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's Talking Points. And you are listening to it by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Carly Webb, an athlete, activist, journalist, socialist, contributor to Outsports, and the host of the Transporter Room. Carly, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's always great to be here to talk about what's happening in the world around us. 
Well, that's a fact. And, uh, you know, Carly, uh, FINA, who is sort of the world's uh, governing body on swimming, uh, announced that they recently voted to restrict transgender athletes uh, participating in some of the top women's competitions and are reportedly creating a working group to establish a, quote, open category for transgender athletes uh, as a part of the new policy in terms of their participation in these events. Now, uh, this uh, uh, policy will require uh, transgender athletes uh, to have completed their transition by age 12 in order to uh, take part in the women's competitions. And uh, James Pierce, a spokesperson for Find a President Hussein Al-Musalam, told the Associated Press, quote, this is not saying that people are encouraged to transition by the age of 12. It's what the scientists are saying, that if you transition after the start of puberty, you have an advantage, which is unfair. And of course, Carly, this all comes within uh, the broader context of increasing attacks on transgender people, transgender athletes, transgender children, really the LGBTQ community uh, uh, in general, and uh, particularly with the recent successes of uh, transgender athletes like Leah Thomas and others, it just seems that uh, this uh, 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 reactionary assault on the community just seems to be sort of strengthening here. Well, first, let's take a look at what the FINA proposal calls for. To begin with, who are the working groups? Who are the people they consulted? There is no transparency in what you're seeing outside of the po- this 24-page policy that came out. And really, this policy is more of a barrier move than anything else to keep transgender people out of sports. And it's going to metastasize. You already talked about World Athletics is going to adopt it. Lord Coe said that yesterday. This is the most draconian set of regulations. They're calling for an even lower serum testosterone limit, and they're saying that you have to be, it says, and this is in the regulations now, Sean, they say that that a person must be, quote-unquote, fully transitioned by age 12. Uh, Age 12 is when most kids who have access to affirming transgender health care start their transition. What do they even understand what fully transition means in this context. This regulation has no scientific, medical, or competitive rationale for it to come into being. This was a rule built by cisgender people for the comfort of cisgender people with the complete ignorance of transgender people, transgender health care, the science behind the the sports, or the competitive reality and sporting results. This is a bad rule all around, and it's a knee-jerk reaction to hysteria and transphobia. Yeah, and the science that they mentioned, James Pierce, the spokesperson for FINA, said he said that this is not saying that people are encouraged to transition by age 12. It's what the scientists are saying. What scientists is he talking about, and what science are they referencing if they're not saying that people should transition by the age of 12? Carly? I mean, well, let's ask the question before the question. Who can transition in age 12? In a, lot of, in a lot of the United States, for example, you can't. Mm. In a lot of Britain, in a lot of the U.K., you can't. In most of the rest of the Western world especially, you can't. And, and where the FINA, current FINA World Championships are being held, you definitely can't because it is the most anti-LGBTQ nation in the NATO alliance, Hung, Victor Orban's Hungary. So what science—and that's, again, what scientists are they talking to? 
We don't know. I have a feeling they were talking to Clyde Kraskup from Alvin and the Chipmunks for this. That's how bad this science is sounding. Because people who have actually done some serious research, like a James Roberts, like a Joanna Harper, they're saying the exact opposite of what of what the swimming governing body is talking about. But really, I want to get into, let's talk about what this is really about. This I call this the Leah Thomas rule, because this is a direct reaction to, to Leah Thomas, what happened at the NCAA championships, and the protests that happened. It's the same thing with what, what UCI, the World Cycling Governing Body, did with their, rule, with their new policy last week. This was a reaction to the fact that they don't want to see a bunch of tra- well-financed transphobes flying to their events going to do one thing, harass any transgender woman who competes. You saw that the U.S. Cycling Cyclocross Championships last fall. You saw it at the NCAA Swimming Championships in March. And you were threatened to see it at the National Omnium Championships that cyclist Emily Bridges was eligible to compete in in the U.K. in April. And then British Cycling and the UCI said at the last minute, no, you're not eligible. They were. A, this is a response to the fact that they don't want anti-trans groups picketing them. So instead of taking the bully's head on, they go after the victim. And in this case, the victim here is Leah Thomas, or the victim in cycling is Emily Bridges. Transgender people are the victims, but they're being cast as the bullies, and it's not right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the, the victims here are being treated as uh, the criminals or, or, or the perpetrators. And uh, I think you're right, Carly, in pointing out about how, I mean, these uh, sports governing bodies <clears throat> are taking uh, a cowardly tact. They're, you know, uh, basically conceding uh, uh, this, this issue to these reactionaries instead of taking an active part in combating them and making their sports as, you know, as inclusive as possible. And I think it's also important to say about how, you know, the narrative around transgender athletes and sports, particularly around trans women, it's being framed by the right wing as, you know, an attempt to keep sports fair or to protect children or whatever, whatever, what have you. But to me, this just seems like an obvious way to uh, further stigmatize and demonize uh, transgender people, transgender athletes and the LGBTQ community um, in general. But it's sort of slickly being portrayed as um, some kind of uh, a preventative measure, when in truth, this is just uh, uh, another way to try to uh, put a good face on what is really a deepening systemic violence. Well, Sean, that's what fascists do. Fascists go after the most, the most vulnerable, and then people who are less vulnerable say they're not going after me. All of a sudden, when the less vulnerable, the more vulnerable, then they realize the leopards are eating your face. And it's not just the, the right wing is calling the tune, but a lot of liberals dance to it. Nancy Hogg's had made cars as liberal as they come. I know you start talking about trans people. So is someone like Martina Navratilova, tennis legend, as liberal as they come on everything. But then you talk about trans people and she throws her MAGA hat on. There's a lot of people who are not just hard, not just Republicans, Democrats who are dancing to this music, especially when they're talking about, well, oh, God, these the 2022 midterms, we might lose if we talk about trans issues. So we're going to back away from you. This is this is not only this is neither right nor left. This is about right and wrong. And this regulation is wrong. And the blowback and the fallout, the transgender people are feeling not just in a swimming pool, but in state houses from Maine to Maui is wrong. And that's what people need to look need to really look at. They're using this. This is not just sports to the people that are pushing this. They're using this issue 
to roll back all sorts of rights for trans people in particular, but also in the larger sense, the larger LGBTQ community. Why do you think proud boys are trying to intimidate people with pride? We're in the Pride Month right now, and transgender people in Pride 2022 have been flipped the bird at every opportunity. And it's no accident. And it's time for cisgender people who are listening, if you have a transgender person in your life, it's time for you to open your mouth. It's time for you to speak up and stand at the barricade. Silent allyship is useless. Now's the time to speak up. Yeah, and, you know, you're, you're right when you point out about how, you know, the liberals have uh, uh, basically either conceded the issue or sort of actively, you know, throwing trans folks under the bus themselves and giving in to their own kind of uh, liberal transphobia, even while, you know, wearing the this this image as you know, a friend to the LGBTQ community. But not only do we see uh, Democrats not protecting LGBTQ folks or, or protecting trans folks in, in places like like Maryland, I mean, we see them um, trying to pander to right-wing voters by throwing trans people under the bus, which is not only not going to work, um, but uh, I think also just makes the situation even more dangerous for this community. And so what I think that means is that that real fight back against this issue is going to have to come from the streets because we have a, a far-right ruling party that is a hell-bent on attacking this community and a center-right liberal party that refuses to uh, fight for this community on the one hand and on the other hand, in some cases, actively taking place from it. And so it's just clear that um, when we talk about a mass people's movement, Carly, that a real clear drive uh, uh, and a fight against homophobia and transphobia, I think, will be an important aspect of that. In, in short, John, what you're really saying is everybody, Stonewall wasn't in 1969. Stonewall was yesterday. Stonewall is now. It's time for people to start picking up their brick. It's time in any way you can. It's time for people to start standing up and realize that is, that is your fight. Again, they're going after the most vulnerable community. Everything you need to know about this issue you're seeing with the Texas Republican Party right now. They are openly saying, we don't believe in American democracy anymore. And when people go from democracy to fascism, they go after the most vulnerable first, and that vulnerable community includes people like me. So, again, I'm saying especially to people of the working class, because this is a workers' battle. This is a, this is a fight that the proletariat, if you lose here, you're going to lose everywhere else. If you don't want to get knocked on your butt, fight for the working class. And LGBTQ people are part of that working class. Liberate, there's no liberation without trans liberation, without gay liberation, without lesbian liberation. Again, it's time for, it's time for, especially for cis, hat, straight people, you got to open your mouth and you got to get in the game and be at the barricades. We're waiting on you. Absolutely true. And, and you know, as we're seeing these kinds of uh, rules being implemented, even, even in uh, the International Cycling Union, which just passed uh, another one of these onerous rules, you know, what, what do you think the probability is, Carly, as you're seeing athletes respond to these rules? Are you seeing the response or any pushback from those uh, cisgender athletes standing up for their fellow athletes? athletes you're seeing pushback in a lot of in a lot of circles one who is very prominent um was quoted by the australian broadcasting corporation earlier this morning nikki dryden former canadian olympic swimmer now she's a human rights lawyer and she openly said leah thomas call me we're gonna fight this 
Another person who's been very outspoken, a uh, good, fr- good friend of mine, friend of the Transporter Room podcast, Alejandra Calibalo, at, uh, a lawyer. She's with the Cyber Law Project at Harvard Law School. And she has said openly, her and Dr. Roger Pelkey from the University of Colorado both said, the court of art for arbitration in sport, the international court which governs sport around the world, are going to see a lot of work in these next few years if these rules get passed because all it takes is athletes to start challenging them. And there are people who are raising their hands up and saying, if you want to challenge this, I'm ready to represent you. So you're starting to see the pushback, and you're starting to see athletes push back. We're going to see more of that as this unfolds because literally it's been a couple days since these rules have been, have been announced. They both go into effect at the 1st of July. I think you're going to see a lot of pushback, and I hope so. I hope that athletes, that athletes especially realize this is your fight too because – this will affect not just transgender athletes. It, this will definitely affect cisgender women. One quick note I want to point out. The FINA rule, the new regulation also calls for chromosomal testing. They're gonna, and that could lead to things like the Nicket parades in the 1960s. These were things that were considered so heinous and archaic that the IOC banned the practice in 1999. They banned the practice, and now you're going to bring it back, which is a direct violation of the new IOC framework for fairness. It is a direct violation of what the new guidelines were supposed to be. So, yeah, I hope that we see pushback, especially from athletes that realize it's not just about trans people, especially for cisgender athletes. This can be about you, too. Everyone's at risk. This is a bad rule for sport. It's a bad rule for human rights. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Carly, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a crisis facing the government inside Israel. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Richard Becker, author of Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks a lot for inviting me. Absolutely. And uh, Richard, the Israeli government uh, recently announced that they will be dissolving the Knesset, which is the parliamentary body of Israel, with um, elections likely to take place uh, this October. And, you know, of course, this would be a kind of a coalition government that was being led by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and uh, his partner, Foreign Minister uh, Yair Lapid, uh, who brought this group together, I believe, uh, back in 2021, uh, basically to bring an end to the long-running administration of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And so I was hoping you could help us understand how things reached this uh, uh, point, Richard, as Israel faces yet uh, another election with uh, uh, the political turmoil in that country uh, clearly very much uh, still going on. And what do you think, uh, sort of how do you see it perhaps uh, playing out from here? Well, 
what it's what seems likely is that there will be another inconclusive election, at, at least if one looks at the polls that come out of Israel. And there's very extensive polling, and the polling is you know usually pretty accurate. Uh, but it looks like um, you know the this the Knesset, uh, as you mentioned, the parliament has uh, 120 members. So that means. In order to uh, to have a, a majority that can form a new government, uh, the there needs to be a coalition of 61 uh, members of the Knesset. That's the, the minimum. Uh, and and so the last time it took them right up until the you know they went through weeks uh, in the last election and until finally stitching together this coalition of a, a number of different parties because. Um, Israel's electoral system as a form of uh, proportional representation. So there's multiple parties. There's not two parties like in the U.S. There's multiple parties in the government. and But all of the parties, um, with the exception of the Arab parties, as they call them, the Pal- what are really the Palestinians who, um, who remain and uh, live inside the state of Israel, uh, but the, all the rest of the parties are, are essentially um, Zionist parties, meaning that they support the state of Israel as an exclusivist Jewish state. Um, some of them have different opinions about how that should be presented, but all of them agree on on that and the idea that the, you know that Israel is a viable and 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 uh, and justifiable uh, state. So. And the range goes from kind of the social democrats. There are some communists who are in, but they're in the the block that's the the um, joint Arab list, I think it's called. Uh, but the range from social democrats to really fascist elements um, who are the most aggressive and who lead the settlers and uh, lead the uh, constant attacks that take place against the Palestinians. And uh, the the government that was formed, which was, a, as you mentioned, really was brought together in order to be an alternative to Netanyahu, <clears throat> who many people had grown tired of. He'd been in office for a long time. He's very right wing. He's got all kinds of charges against him for corruption and <clears throat> and bribe taking and, and that kind of thing. And uh, but but really, there was nothing that bound them together. Uh, <laughs> Other than, than that, that they wanted to be the government instead of Netanyahu being the government. And all of them support, uh, all the Israeli parties, uh, all support the, uh, the, the continuing repression and suppression of the Palestinian people, both inside the uh, state of Israel and in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, the occupied West Bank and Gaza um, some of them will put it differently that they want a two-state solution, but every single day, and maybe we could talk a little bit more about this. But every single day, the brutality of the Israeli occupation goes on against the Palestinians. It's never mentioned here, uh, or uh, almost never mentioned in the in the mass media here, unless there is resistance. The resistance by the Palestinians is the only thing that's called violence. But the violence goes on every day. And it doesn't matter if it's a government headed by Netanyahu or a governor headed by Bennett and Lapid. 
Yeah, and I was hoping you could say more sort of about how this factors into the daily reality for uh, uh, the Palestinian people. I mean, you mentioned uh, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, he, uh, by all reports, it seems to be, you know, celebrating this uh, crumbling of the government, calling it, quote, the worst government in Israeli history and saying that it was, quote, dependent on supporters of terrorism that endangered the Jewish character of our state. And I think that that sentiment sort of speaks to, you know, the, the the supremacist orientation of uh, Israel uh, that we know to be the case. And that's just the thing, because uh, as you note, Richard, within the Knesset and the government, I mean, we have a a range of sorts, but they really all seem to be different flavors of, you know, the same sort of uh, a Zionist tendency. So, I mean, how does this factor into what we know as uh, the fundamentally genocidal reality uh, being faced by Palestinians day in and day out uh, under occupation? Yeah, I mean, there's. It's it's really amazing how the uh, the mass media in the U.S., given the closeness of the U.S. and Israel, how the corporate mass media here uh, can just ignore what's going on on a day to day basis. You know, I I have uh, an article in front of me from Haaretz newspaper, and Haaretz is a is a liberal Zionist uh, newspaper and website uh, in Israel based in Israel that um, you get a lot, if you follow it, you, you get a lot more coverage of what's really going on. And, and I have an article, I think it's from yesterday, and it has a list of other articles. And, and here's the headlines of some of the other articles. And this is, this is one about how uh, the settlers, uh, the Israeli Jewish settlers in the West Bank, are carrying out every day, they're carrying out attacks on the Palestinians, really brutal attacks. Uh, and th- this one is about how they stopped a car with a father and son inside the car and uh, and blocked it. And then this guy runs up and their windows open and takes a large rock and from from three feet away smashes it into the face of the driver. And on the other side, the other uh, the, the son gets gets hit uh, and they had the multiple uh, surgeries and and stitches and so forth because of this. And and uh, and in this article, the Haaretz uh, carries the headlines from some other recent articles. Charges are pressed only in four percent of settler violence cases. That, despite the fact that almost every single one of them is videotaped. Uh, here's another headline: Settlers attack Palestinians. The Israeli army punishes the Palestinians. Repeat. In other words, this is what goes on: the, the settlers stage an attack. The military may be there at the beginning. The Israeli occupation forces may be there, or they may show up late, and then they uh, attack the Palestinians themselves. And here's another headline. For Israel settlers, it's a war. Their target, Palestinian land, hyphen, and bodies. And here's one more that I think is very telling. Violent Israeli settlers are starting to resemble the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. Well, they're not starting to. <laughs> They've been resembling the KKK for a long time. But this is what's going on. This is what um, the U.S. government and, and most U.S. politicians uh, are either keep quiet about or, in many cases, you know, justify. And they do what Netanyahu does, and they call the Palestinians. They label all the Palestinians as uh, terrorists. And, uh, you know, you have a, a, a recent... Uh, official in the in the government saying 
if he could press a button and all the, and this is what he said, all the Arabs, meaning Palestinians, could be relocated to Switzerland, he'd be happy to do so. So what we have is a continuation, regime after regime, whether it's headed by Netanyahu or it's headed by Sharon or or, uh, Rabin or Begin or all the way back to David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of the state of Israel, the policies are aimed at driving out the indigenous population. And three-quarters of of a million Palestinians were driven out to make way for the state of Israel back in 1948 and 49. Uh, hundreds of thousands more were driven out uh, when Israel seized the West Bank and Gaza in an, a war of aggression in 1967, which was always re- misrepresented here in the United States. And the pressure continues. Uh, and, and really what the Israeli leadership would like to see w- w- would be exactly what that politician said the disappearance of the Palestinians altogether. But the Palestinians don't intend to go, to to disappear to anywhere. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the resistance there uh, certainly continues. And I mean, just sort of looking at uh, uh, sort of all the players involved here and all the different factors that um, have uh, uh, developed things as they are to Israel up to this point, Richard. I mean, it it doesn't seem that even though uh, there's a election that's upcoming in a few months, I mean, it doesn't seem like um, there's a situation that's going to see a fundamental change in the dynamics of things inside the countries, or certainly as it pertains um, to the Palestinians in their struggle. And so although there um, are clearly disagreements amongst uh, uh, the Zionists, that clearly uh, this ideology, uh, with all its support from the U.S. and the West, uh, will continue uh, uh, to be sort of the the dominant factor in uh, uh, the country in terms of its politics and who's in power, uh, maybe regardless of who's even running the government. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a it's a good point. It will continue. Uh, it's interesting to note what brought down this government. Uh, mm-hmm. There were a couple of defections, and they were just a little over the sixty mark to begin with. Uh, but one of the things that brought down the government is one uh, member of Bennett's own party, which is an extreme right wing party. It's been they, they, it's been made to look less right wing in, in the media. He's been made to look more like a respectable statesman. "Quote unquote," uh, but his one member of his party said he was going to he was going to withdraw his support, which would essentially and which essentially did was kind of the final nail in the in the coffin of this of this particular uh, coalition government was that unless the parliament passed a law that said that the Israeli settlers living in the West Bank would be governed under Israeli law while the Palestinians continue to be governed under 19 uh, uh, emergency military regulations that were adopted from the British colonizers uh, when they left. The the Israelis have imposed this. This Everyone goes to military courts, 99.4% convicted, that unless that, uh, that, that status was maintained, this legislator said, he would withdraw from the government, meaning that Unless the apartheid regime in the legal realm was maintained, and it's clearly, I mean, here you have people, half a million or more settlers in the West Bank, they're governed under civilian law. The Palestinians uh, in the West Bank, two and a half million people, they're governed under 
military regulations that give them virtually no chance of winning. If you, anyone can't see the apartheid character of the state just by that alone, you know you have to be you have to be turning away deliberately, turning away from understanding the reality of Palestine and Israel today. Yeah, I think that's the case. I think that's the case. And um, how do you think? Uh, Washington is viewing these developments in Israel right now. I mean, do you think it really matters uh, in terms of the White House as long as the government uh, continues to be, um, you know, sufficiently deferential to the U.S.? Or how do you think uh, uh, things are being viewed from that standpoint? Well, I think what Washington cares about is, first and foremost, that Israel is is um, an asset to the United States. It's part of the U.S. empire. I I wrote a book uh, years ago called Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire. And the the point of it was, the thesis of it is that Israel is, in fact, this isn't just an Israeli lobby, but there's great value that Israel has as a military, kind of a a new Sparta kind of state in the Middle East and allied with the U.S. and able to carry out all kinds of actions that the U.S. doesn't want to do particularly like the bombing of Syria that goes on all the time from Israel. Um, Probably the administration would like them to cool it, the settlers, but the settlers aren't going to do that because the settlers are, uh, the the most active settlers are are fascist, and they're going to continue doing what they do. And what the U.S. is worried about in that regard is that there will be another upheaval that takes place, another, potentially another intifada or uprising like the two that happened uh, previously in 1988 and again in 2000. And that can upset the whole apple cart in the Middle East for the U.S. And the U.S., uh, you know, this is a very important part of the world, and they don't want to see uh, a new uprising that would potentially trigger new uprisings elsewhere in the region as well. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Richard, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Carafa, the editor of TechForThePeople.org and the co-host of the Reboot Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be with you. Absolutely. And Chris, um, the New York Times is reporting that Google has placed one of its engineers on paid leave after uh, dismissing this engineer's claims that the company's artificial intelligence may be gaining sentience. And I was hoping you could break down uh, just what's happening here in the case of this engineer and whether or not this issue with Google's AI is as bad, bad as it sounds. Yeah, so uh, this engineer at Google, Blake uh, Lemoyne, I believe it's pronounced, uh, works on language processing and artificial intelligence at the company, uh, actually is a senior engineer there, uh, and he is working on something called Lambda. 
the language model for dialogue applications. I mean, very simply, it's um, an extension of kind of, you know, if you can imagine those chat bots that come up on a, when you go to visit a website or even, you know, when you're trying to, you know, actually get a human agent when you call, you know, a company on the phone, you know, they try to, these kind of language models try to improve the understanding of the system uh, to give you the information that you're looking for. In this case, uh, Mr. Lemoyne had looked at, you know, he was basically having a conversation, he said, with Lambda, with some, you know, the software he had built with off of the Lambda model and data set and the way Lambda was trained, because all of these machine learning systems have to be trained, is just by pulling information off the internet. Um, the way these things work, though, is that they want to give you the answer you're looking for. And if the answer you're looking for is to try to have a human conversation, then optimizing a data model for that is going to lead you know, the system to do that. But it does not have a soul. It is going through a series of algorithms, albeit very, very complex for sure, to try to say, what would a person say in this kind of situation, but it is not sentient. It is not thinking in the way that we would think of, you know, humans thinking and having a conversation. It is going through those data sets and trying to figure out what you want to hear to convince you that it's you know having a conversation. There was also a great follow-up piece um, in the Washington Post by Timnit Gerbru and Margaret Mitchell. And the reason this is so important is that both of them were fired by Google last year uh, a, for shouting out warnings and, and, and trying to flag issues with AI in general in this, uh, in, in, in the applications here, but also with the way that Google was using AI. Uh, in particular, one of the things that uh, Drs. Gebru and Mitchell warned about was the fact that people are going to start to think that these AIs have consciousness, that there isn't a um, an explanation to the public, that there isn't you know, an a, a education to explain that these things are not human. They are computer programs. They are very advanced computer programs. They are, you know, understandable only by a very small number of people, if at all, but they do not have thoughts. They do not have a mind like a living being would. And of course, this has been something uh, that has been, you know, part of the popular culture for decades, right? I mean, I think we can go back, you know, many, many years, think of how, um, you know, in uh, or in 2001, or, you know, so many computers or systems that turn on, you know, the people who use them or own them. Uh, so many, you know, just different science fiction or, you know, close to science reality theories that show, uh, you know, this kind of AI becoming aware, becoming so supposedly conscious and turning on people. So I, th I think that what we need to really be aware of here is the people who are working on actual uh, ethical AI, and that includes uh, Drs. Gebru and Mitchell, of course, who, who again were fired from Google for trying to raise some of these concerns. Uh, and you know, includes a number of people in the industry who are, are really trying to say, you know, it, this is. I think that's the thing I say all the time. I might even say it every week. The question isn't can we, but should we, and how do we? 
Yeah, and you know the the point you make about uh, the folks uh, working on ethical AI, I think is is important, Chris. And so I have to ask, I mean, why does Google seem so averse to uh, making any real change to the character of its AI? I mean, I have to guess that it has something to do with um, their bottom line, but uh, it just doesn't seem like a coincidence that people seem to keep getting removed from the company once they raise these kinds of questions. Right. You know, in terms of this particular project at Google, it's not super clear, as I think, what the immediate application would be. But I think it's it's possible to extrapolate a little bit and look into the future. Take, you know, you, let's say you have a customer service representative who, you know, is going through, um, you know, some version of a script because that's what the company that they work for or even the subcontractor that they work for. Because many, when you call up a company, you know, for support or whatever, it's oftentimes a subcontractor. They're generally using a script, uh, you know, to help you out. Well, what if you could train an AI to run that same script and maybe identify when something needs to be escalated and things like that? You would be able to not have as many people working, which decreases your labor costs and therefore decreases your overhead. I think that is one of many uh, examples that we can think of. At one point, Google also previewed uh, at their I.O. developer conference a few years ago, and they ended up not to uh, deploying this, but they previewed a system where you could supposedly call a restaurant, but you were actually talking to an AI system that, that Google ran to make reservations, and it would make the reservation for you with the restaurant as well. That is actually very simple, you know, like, well, it's very, very obvious that that can be damaging to the restaurants. And in that case, Google wants to get that information about what restaurants are most popular, things like that. Well, it's good to know that we're not talking about a uh, move toward a, sky ni- a Skynet type of situation uh, with uh, Google AI, but then there are always issues with the people who are programming uh, that AI, as it is with people programming all technology. It's the biases uh, that the people bring with them and what the technology is used for. And I think that is a, a part of this next story where a U.S. defense contractor, L3 Harris, is in talks to buy an Israeli spyware firm, uh, the NSO Group. Um, and there are concerns that the White House has about uh, this defense contractor buying the NSO Group. I find that interesting. But what what are the White House's concerns that with uh, 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 L3 Harris buying this particular uh, spyware firm um, uh, uh, in general? Yeah, well, let's remember who the NSO group is. I think most infamously, they make Pegasus, which is a system where the person using it can put in a phone number and send an attack to anyone's phone and take over that phone without the person knowing. This has been used uh, to infiltrate uh, you know, activists, journalists, human rights workers, and so many more around the world, and also uh, likely to, you know, we, we think that it's been used on heads of state in places like possibly Poland or Hungary. And I think there's more research being done specifically on that, but it's looking more and more like that has been used. And of course, once you as a state or private actor have access to somebody's phone, you can read all the documents on it. You can see what they're doing on screen, maybe even turn the camera on. 
all sorts of things. Well, the NSO group at this point is practically banned in the U.S. in terms of U.S. companies or, you know, government uh, organizations doing business with it because of all the work that uh, reporters did last year in outing some of the clients of the NSO group. Um, So, yeah, so this was one way. Basically, what I see here happening is that this is one way for the NSO founders and board and executives to basically make, you know, make an exit. Uh, to get out, to say, we're going to sell to an American company, therefore this can't be banned anymore, and we'll sell and take our however many you know billions of dollars in that sale and just get out and maybe go start another business. So the White House is concerned about this, but I, I don't think they are speaking strongly enough about these concerns. It made the news last week a little bit, but there has been very little uh, in terms of any kind of language from the White House since, and certainly very few statements from the majority of members of Congress who would be able, to, in fact, under the law, to stop this sale or you know force the force a uh, thorough review of it. The White House's concern uh, they they mentioned counterintelligence and security concerns, and I think what that means to to me is that the concerns are actually around bringing Israeli products. Uh, very advanced Israeli products into the U.S. to see if there is any kind of, you know, because there could be something in those products that that could be dangerous to U.S. infrastructure. Um, You know, given the relationship that the U.S. and Israel share, uh, I think it's certainly possible but questionable if that's you know, the the case. And we should also remember who the customers of NSO Group have been. I mean, in particular, Saudi Arabia uh, was one of the, you know, a main customer, um, as well as, you know, just a number of other really just awful regimes around the world. Definitely. And, you know, switching gears a little bit, Chris, uh, I was looking at this piece in the markup that talked about how Facebook receives uh, sensitive medical information from hospital websites. And the market uh, tested this, uh, the websites of uh, the top 100 hospitals in America, according to Newsweek. And on 33 of them, according to their reporting, they found a tractor, a tracker called Metapixel, which sends Facebook a, a packet of this data whenever someone's schedules a doctor's appointment. Now, it seems that a person's uh, uh, medical information is, uh, you know, pretty private, obviously. But I was hoping you could sort of explain, Chris, I mean, what's happening here with Facebook and why they would even want access to this info. Yeah, the meta pixel used to be called the Facebook pixel is something that, uh, you know, any company can put on their website. Uh, any organization can. And, you know, it integrates with Facebook. So you can use Facebook to see kind of uh, you know, trends about who's coming to your site, track them between platforms and things like that, particularly if they're logged into Facebook. But even if they're not logged into Facebook, we know that uh, the company has been creating shadow uh, profiles where even if they don't know who you are, they still are trying to identify uh information about you in between or, or through your visits. So if a, if a, a company or if a hospital has the pixel, the metapixel on it, if their developers or executives have decided, whoever's in charge decided, hey, we're going to integrate this with Facebook, that means Facebook is getting information about when you're clicking uh, a button to schedule an appointment, what, you're, what you are searching for. 
for example, on these websites. I mean, that is the most personal information, you know, that a person can have. And it's just being handed out to Facebook in the interest of these hospitals um, building up your, you know, building up their marketing structure. Um, you know, in many cases, most cases for these top 100, these are uh, pro, these are, you know, for-profit institutions. And of course, that means that they want to be making money, which, you know, healthcare and money should have absolutely nothing to do with each other. And the, you know, healthcare data, including the things you're searching for on the website of a hospital to get medical care, should absolutely be protected. But according to lawyers, uh, this unfortunately doesn't look like a violation um, of, you know, HIPAA, um, you know, unless there are, you know, certain uh, analyses done and then, you know, a court would see it in a very particular way. I think there's been a good analysis of that um, by the Office for Civil Rights, uh, which is mentioned in this markup piece. And there have been other uh, longer interviews with folks from that office. But again, there should be absolutely no reason for, for this story to even exist. There is no reason for healthcare data uh, and Facebook to be anywhere near each other. And this is why folks should install an ad blocker on, you know, on their phones and computers. Yeah, it seems to me that the only way you will know if your uh, HIPAA rights were violated is uh, if your HIPAA rights were violated, and then you would have to respond to that. I mean, that it doesn't seem to be a proactive way for consumers, for Facebook users, to know whether their information has been, uh, their privacy has been violated by this uh, by this service. That's right. There are some ways to get that kind of information from Facebook, but it's extremely difficult to do. You really have to go through, you know, the settings and the menus and all of that. I actually have to look it up myself every time I do it. It's very complicated and it still doesn't give you a full, you know, reason why you saw a certain ad. It can help you get an idea, but it doesn't always provide all of the details because also this information is often resold. So, uh, you know, somebody could target you based on your hospital searches, um, but it might not, you know, they could have bought that information from the hospital or even from Facebook and then reloaded it. And so, you know, once it's gone through this third or fourth step, they're not required or they're not going to show you the sources. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes. Welcome back, my friends. It is Tuesday, uh, June 21st, and in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. to talk to us, tell us what's on your mind, talk about whatever is going on in this world, anything at all. But that is not the only way you can connect with us here at the show, because there are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades. That's y'all to reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary. 
area in Washington, D.C. Of course, you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to us live at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen to us on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each day. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And we are very happy to be joined for this hour by friend, my friend, Maurice Cook, founder of Serve Your City. Maurice, my brother, how you doing? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. So good to be with both you and, and Sean. How you doing, Jack? I am doing all right. Sean is, uh, Sean gave me the con for the afternoon. So all you got is me today. But you know what? There's enough going on in the city for us to have a really good conversation. Of course, I got to start with the primary elections today in D.C. Uh, District voters head to the polls for the city's primary election. Folks remember that D.C. is a closed primary. You have to belong to a be registered uh, with a uh, political party registered as something to be able to vote in the cro- closed primary. Uh, and uh, we're selecting the Democratic nominees uh, across several races, including the mayor, the AG, and several seats on the D.C. City Council. Now, of course, you know, Maurice, D.C. is and always has been heavily Democratic. And I think the only time in the history of this city's politics that I could remember a person who was not a Democrat being taken seriously at all in D.C. electoral politics was Carol Schwartz. Um, and she was the only she she was a Republican. And I think she was on the she was on the city council. I can't remember how many years she was on the city council. But, you know, we had a lot of respect for Carol Schwartz. And I think she may have been the last best or I don't know, worst hope for anyone who is not a Democrat to uh, gain any kind of political legitimacy um, and certainly be taken seriously in electoral politics in this city. But with a Democratic mayor, Maurice, who for the vast majority of the working class and poor citizens of the city, Uh, who has performed so underwhelmingly for them. But of course, she is the darling of the developers. How do you see regular folk, me and you, folks like us, the people we live around, the people we serve, how do you see us responding to this Democratic primary and the upcoming uh, elections in November? Well, I'd have to say that those of us that are willing and are informed enough to participate. Um, for us, especially those of us who are, you know, centered our lives and purposed our lives for, you know, working class black people specifically in, in Washington, D.C., 
um, we, we, it, it has to be a vote against um, the status quo and a vote against the current uh, incumbent administration. Yeah, you know, and something has uh, has really bothered me about this election cycle. Now, I see all of the, you know, the placards up of all of the different candidates. And, and for folks who don't know, you know, each ward uh, uh, selects uh, their council member. Um, and there are plenty of folks running to uh, unseat uh, uh, incumbent council members. And for the uh, uh, Democratic, the Democratic uh, nominee uh, for mayor, there is, of course, uh, Muriel Bowser representing the establishment, uh, but also her challengers, Trayon White Sr., uh, who is the council member for Ward 8, Robert C. White Jr., who is the at-large council mem- member, or James Butler, who is a former uh, advisory neighborhood commissioner. Now, the thing that's bothered me, Maurice, is I, I you know, I know I'm not home, if someone someone came knocking on my door during the day, but I am not seeing a whole lot of campaign literature like being left at my door. I think there was one flyer that was left on the door, which indicated to me that the person from this campaign did come and knock on the door. But everything else I'm getting in the mail and, and I don't know, I'm kind of old fashioned. I don't really like that. I, I really feel like if you really want to state your case to the people for why they need to do exactly what you just said people need to do, come out in opposition of the status quo, the people need to hear from you why they should vote for you. First of all, they need to know hear from you so they can know who the heck you are and that you are running. And, I, and I'm not seeing a lot of that grassroots pounding the pavement, door knocking going on. In, in in any of the uh, campaigns of the challengers, particularly to Muriel Bowser. And, and I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are on that. Do you think that these candidates are making a huge mistake in getting away from that, that grassroots door knocking, you know, uh, a pavement pounding campaigning uh, and, and relying on? I'm not sure what they're relying on to get their message out. But but your thoughts on that? Well, all the, the, the mayoral candidates, the, the challenge is they're also a part of the establishment. And they're going to benefit by the lack of new voter participation, uh, just being already within, within that institutional system. And so you don't see the, the typical outreach grassroots-wise because these are entrenched uh, you know, representatives, current current representatives who are vying for the top position, um, other than the incumbent who already has the top position. And the the thirst to get new voters to increase their potential uh, candidacy and to enhance their campaigns is not there. Um, they're literally depending upon those who are already engaged, those who are already entrenched as part of the um, guaranteed electoral support that they can receive. And especially in what is remaining of the dwindling, um, you know, I would call them hyper-black communities uh, within the city, you see very little to no outreach um, to, to, to buy for for. New voters. It's, it's a shame. And 
I think that's the thing that that I'm getting at. I think that's the thing that's really getting under my skin. You know, I don't expect Muriel Bowser to come around to the hood, the Southeast DC or Southeast as we call it. I don't expect her. I don't expect to, you know, to her to ring my doorbell and for me to open the door and there she's standing, you know, saying vote for me because I've done blah, blah, blah for your community because she wouldn't dare. And and to to our community uh, in particular. Um, And, you know, she she doesn't have to because, as I said, she is the darling of the the developers, uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg's good friend, good enough that he he would uh, give her lots and lots of money. So so she doesn't have to do any door knocking uh, and campaigning. But these so-called up insurgent candidates. And, and I think that in a way, like Trayon White is viewed as an insurgent uh, candidate because, you know, he's a long shot. He's certainly not going to win the primary against Muriel Bowser. He is from Southeast D.C. Uh, he is and unashamedly um, uh, was mentored by Marion Barry and, and all of that kind of stuff. And there, there, are, there are a lot of criticisms that we could have that are very legitimate for Trayon White, you know, youth and experience, uh, you know, lack of sophistication, whatever, politically, I mean. Um, but but the thing that does bother me about his campaign and the campaign of the other challengers is they're not out here campaigning to get people. I mean, if you say you're out here for the people and I'm not sitting here advocating for the electoral system, but since these people are actually running campaigns and they want people to vote for them and every so often they come out and and do whatever little community events they do to get people to uh, uh, vote for them or whatever, they they don't reach out to new voters. And, and there are plenty first time voters over in Ward 8 and Ward 7, there are plenty, uh, you know, that that just turned uh, a voting age or people who just are voting for the first time. But it's like it, it is almost to me, Maurice, a signal from even these politicians, even these so-called upstart insurgent, uh, you know, challenger campaigns that they're not really concerned about the people that they claim that they are advocating for either to to the point where they don't even want to get out and convince people that not only should you vote for me, but you should vote at least vote for somebody. But you you, you should vote. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to I want to make sure that um, in defense of uh, Trayon White's campaign, he, he, he received very few financial, you know, financial resources for it, you know, very little financial support in comparison to uh, the un- other two candidates, the, the mayor being the incumbent and and uh, Robert White, who is the current at-large uh, council member. Uh, if you compare the amount of money that uh, those two candidates have compared to, to, to Trail White's uh, campaign, you know, it, 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 it's, it's great. And, and I will say, uh, Trayon has done, uh, Councilmember Trayon White has done, um, I, I think, as good as you can with the limited amount of, of funding support that his campaign has received. I, I will say that. But, and 
your point is is also correct. You know, where did where did the resources go? Mm. You know, what 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 you know, who was making the decision about where to put uh, those investments and and the buildup of, of securing new voters, the buildup of, of the ground team necessary to outreach to people who live who like you who live in, in where you live and, and, and certainly the younger people. I know some you know, I know a lot of, you know, college age uh, young people um, who are 21 and who are not um, engaged in what is happening. And so there is a lack of political education. There is a lack of connection between, uh, let's just say, um, you know, D.C. local go-go, go-go culture and, and our electoral system. Yeah, I mean, and I think there were so many different opportunities. And I think that there were instances, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned go-go culture, like when we talked uh, uh, many times on this show about the fight to uh, against literally canceling DC go go culture, uh, you know, with the with the hashtag Don't Mute DC uh, uh, campaign, you know, that is, I think, it, even though it was a cultural fight, but it was also a political fight, and I think that to where people made that connection. It was good, but I felt like there was so much more that could have been done. And and but then I guess I didn't I didn't consider what you brought up, the 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 financial backing part of it. So, you know, for people who don't understand how financing works, campaign campaign financing works in D.C., Maurice, maybe you could help people understand because, I mean, is it a communal pot of money? What how, how do campaigns get financed in D.C.? Yeah, both. Um, we do have uh, campaign finance support, public financing of campaigns, um, and that's that's relatively new. And I think that the interesting part of it is, I think many who are in support of Trayvon White's campaign were against uh, public financing of campaigns, which limits the ability, um, well, limits the dollar amount that individuals can can provide or can donate to, to, you know, people's campaigns, which I believe is a more fair, equitable system. Um, but there's pros and cons uh, with this new, you know, public financing system and, and the old, um, you know, system kind of what I would call wild, wild west, the, 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 the richest will get the most influence and not that the richest still don't get the most influence now. Um, but yeah, so we do have public financing, uh, but you still need numbers. At the end of the day, the more people that donate, you know, to your campaign, the more money your campaign's going to have. Mm-hmm. With with Trayon White's very limited, I would say, popularity across the most resourced uh, parts of the city, you know, his numbers are going to be uh, less than uh, both uh, Councilmember Robert White's and certainly. Um, our mayor, Muriel Bowser's, um, you know, uh, donation tools. Yeah, you know that that's a fact. I, I'm I'm glad you brought up the point that, you know, it, it's it's it, the 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 public campaign finance piece in D.C. is more equitable. But when you're talking about a campaign that's uh, uh, based in the least resourced part of the city um, that is funded uh, by people with the least resources in the city, then, of course, you are 
operating at a disadvantage from that very, you know, from the very nature of the way the system is set up, which to me, you know, leads me to believe that, hmm, that might have been kind of by design because there's no way knowing how D.C. is gentrified, knowing how uh, the income inequality in the city falls uh, so heavily on the disadvantaged side of uh, Ward 7 and 8, uh, the poorest and the blackest uh, areas of the city. There's no way that the people who came up with the finance, the public finance plan, didn't know that the council member Uh, whoever it is representing wards seven and eight would always be on the low end of the uh, uh, camp public campaign finance pot. Um, But, you know, that's another one of those old head DC. It's a plot. It's a CON spiracy kind of ideas that uh, you just put in my head, Maurice, but I want to talk about it on the other side of this break. We're going to take a quick break, the first break of the hour, but we will be back on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. Well, no, phone lines are open right now. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Maurice Cook. And, you know, on the other side of the break, Maurice, I was I was thinking about and I was expressing how I was thinking about the public campaign finance uh, set up in D.C. Sounds like a good idea until you take into account the rampant gentrification and the gross income inequality uh, and not just income, just inequality in all aspects of life that exist between wards one through uh, six and seven and wards seven and eight. And, And I'm wondering, you know, if you feel like the the reality of that inequality factored into the setup of this campaign finance thing where, you know, some political forces basically said, yeah, the people who represent Ward 7 and 8 are never going to get as much money as the, you know, candidates that come from other wards. And that's OK. We like it that way. No, I, I, I believe that, you know, it's a progressive trend. And I, I think, you know, ideologically um, and, and the, the whole you know progressive concept of the idea is to make the election more fair. But in reality, it, it, it plays out differently because we have such class and racial dynamics when it comes to who is willing uh, to support whom, no matter what their you know platform or 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 the interests that candidates support, because we have these 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 unaddressed issues and ignored issues and and minimized issues specifically within Washington. It it obviously it, you know happenstance as we're always told it serves to benefit. Um, white, well-resourced candidates 
do, who could potentially have even some viability in, in hyper-black communities like Ward 7 and Ward 8. And, and it just... In, in its own way, because of the racial and class dynamics within Washington, D.C., it just buffers the status quo. Because mm-hmm. alternatively, if you use the old system, it, it is possible for very resourced individuals um, who may support someone from Ward 7 Warding to give an abundance of, of donations to the individual that they support. But now with the public financing laws, those donations are limited. Mm. And of course, you know, I, my my expectation is that Muriel Bowser will be the Democratic nominee. That's that's again, you know, as as I said at the top of the hour, why you're not hearing boo from her. And uh, we're going to have more of the same. But but you know, even even if you know, someone like Robert C. White uh, were able to clinch the nomination. I I suspect that we wouldn't get too much different from him because, as you said, Maurice, they they represent the establishment. Uh, um, and, and, you know, it's just a, a changing of the guard, so to speak, as it is in so many other places. But but go ahead. I, I agree with you, Jackie. Um, I do believe the incumbent uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser will take uh, you know this election and have a third term. Hey, you know, to be honest, I, I hope I'm wrong. Um, I, I hope I'm wrong about that, and, and we shall see tonight. Um, but yes, I, I also believe that um, Councilmember White is not a um, an insurgent uh, because he is just as part of the establishment as uh, Muriel Bowser is. I mean, uh, you know, I guess the way his campaign shaped out, he he was running to her left, but that didn't, that doesn't take very much. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, um, and so the whole concept, and and I say this, you know, often with Democrats like these, who who, who needs Republicans, right? And so um, that, that, that label is very broad. I want to make sure our national audience understands that. And by the way, that Democrats treat the, the poor uh, working class people here in Washington, D.C., is it uh, a, a, a microcosm or is it a macrocosm of the way that, that national Democrats uh, treat poor and, and, and working class people? Mm. Yeah, you know, that that's a good question and a good pivot to what I want you to want to ask you about the next uh, Maurice and it's this these January 6th hearings talking about, you know, the way Democrats operate on a national level and what they do for, you know, working class and poor people now. I am one of those people, Maurice, who said that these hearings wouldn't it, it, televising these hearings wouldn't wouldn't produce much value. It's, it was just, you know, a dog and pony show for the Democrats. It's them, you know, trying basically showing their work, trying to say shoring up for the midterms. Look, see, we did everything we could to uh, hold Donald Trump accountable because really these these hearings are not about 
quote unquote, saving democracy. And I stand by that one. It's they are not about saving democracy for the Democrats. The, these hearings are about pinning something on Donald Trump and getting rid of him uh, like they didn't do and should have uh, quite some time ago when they should have charged him, uh, uh, made sure that he was charged with uh, um, uh, with the insurrection, uh, but didn't. But now, you know, now, Maurice, now that a couple of the hearings have been aired and I've watched them, I, I got to admit, I'm going to give the Democrats a little bit of credit for actually showing something of value, because it's not as if we did not know on the surface that, you know, obviously we knew Trump actually lost the the election. Obviously, we knew that the whole stolen election thing and election fraud were complete and utter lies. But what has been surprising, aside for me from the uh, the first televised hearing, the additional footage of the violence that they showed that the insurrectionists uh, committed against the cops, that was that was surprising to me. But also it has been a little bit more surprising to me to hear some of these uh, Trump supporting Republicans go into detail under oath uh, about how, you know, Donald Trump is basically crazy pants with this illegal idea (laughs) to overturn a legal election. And, you know, does it what does it mean legally? I I don't know. That's up to to the Department of Justice. And my hopes aren't high there. But I do think there has been a little bit of value in seeing, for me at least, Maurice, just how just how willing these politicians were, the ones in Trump's camp, to violate their sacred constitution while claiming they were upholding the Constitution. Basically, it, I think it's good for people to see that these people, these law and order folks, don't give a doggone about the law, and especially when it serves them to break it. And I think for that, I'll give the Democrats a little bit of credit for exposing the raw underbelly of that uh, in these hearings. But I, I don't I don't know. What are what are your thoughts on these hearings and, and what they mean, if they mean anything? Well, I think I think they do mean something. Um, you know, I think it's important that black people take a look at the very, you know, beginning of of the march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol and see with their eyes wide open the people who were allowed to live. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. I think that's, it's traumatizing, but it's a reality check that we have to, have to look directly in the face. And so it's a slap in the face, of course, given that every time one of us are killed, and it's shown on on cell phone camera. The first thing that these people say in the blue uniforms is that I was afraid for my life. Right. And yet they are being pummeled that day by all types of different weapons, and nobody, I guess, you know, feared for their life. The guns out. And so I just think we, you know, black people, we have to pay very, very close attention to that. 
don't ignore that. But I also feel I agree with you. It is instructive to see this performance because that's all that it is, is a performance. And to recognize that, that the law and order uh, regime um, within both the, the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, that really is when it's convenient and serves their interests and their purposes. Uh, yeah, you're right. To see all the people sell Trump out um, on this, you know, ludicrous and ridiculous, you know, concept of a, of a, the thievery of the election, one that he set up prior to the election, by the way. Right. Debates and, 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 and throughout meeting, he said it was going to be stolen. And it's almost like they were on a marketing campaign prior to the election that it was going to be stolen as, as, a, as a kind of a get-out card. Well, they didn't, some didn't go that far. And that's because it, it no longer served their purpose. They were willing to tell the truth at, when they knew that they wouldn't benefit from the lie. And that's who these people are. Got yeah, about that. And so that is instructive. Yeah. You know, and I, and I did watch uh, some of the hearing today. Uh, if if it's still going on, it might just be wrapping up. It started at one o'clock and earlier today, Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers testified and he said something, Maurice, that I thought was really, really interesting. Wasn't again, wasn't shocking. But very interesting. He said in his testimony that when Trump asked him repeatedly to just, you know, certify the election results or, you know, in Trump's favor or, uh, you know, just just uh, call a a special session to um, uh, affirm these fake electors. And, and, you know, this guy is saying that, no, I can't do that constitutionally under the Constitution of the United States. I cannot do that under the Constitution of Arizona. I cannot do that. He said that because he is a man of faith. Uh, Rusty Bowers said, and he believed that the Constitution is, get this, Maurice, that the Constitution is divinely inspired. And hearing him say that in public, I thought was like a watershed moment for me as a person of faith uh, who is also a socialist. We exist. Um, and the vast, the the difference between Christo-fascists who will be fine with backing someone like Donald Trump in the first place, but then somehow draw this imaginary line at doing something, quote unquote, illegal um, when you voted for and supported a guy who did plenty of illegal things. And that was completely OK. Um, and and the rest of us like these people don't just believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. They think the Constitution of the United States is inspired, which elevates the so-called founding fathers to like saint-like status, which explains why they often quote them um, as if they themselves are God. But then, Maurice, it also brings into question, like, if the Constitution of this country is divinely inspired— What about the constitutions of other countries that are far more democratic than this one? Who who inspired them? They're not divinely inspired. So, you know, so so when we look at the way these people think, and I do think that is what we are seeing 
in some of these hearings, how these folks, these conservative uh, uh, politicians, we're not just seeing that they they didn't want to break the law. I think in a way we are seeing how they think on a personal level. And it is it is, as you said, very instructive to understanding why there is no alignment or agreement with those people. They just don't see reality the same way we do, Maurice, and and they honestly never will. I agree with that. You know, I, I will say this, that it, it makes sense that they believe that a document created to protect the power of the elite is divinely inspired because they use that document and none of the amendments to the document, but the original document as, as a shield to protect the status quo, which they are benefiting from. And so when you feel a document is divine and you are the ultimate beneficiary, except for these little flies and gnats and mosquitoes that, that keep trying to change it, you're gonna, you're, you too believe you're part of the chosen people. And this is why you believe you're better than everybody else plays into the hands of the patriarchy, misogyny, and white supremacy. I am not surprised. Yeah, and you know, the wild thing is that these folks, this was this was after uh, last week's testimony when another, uh, one of the conservative uh, whoever, uh, uh, you know, testified that when he, he can't wait to get to heaven. This is what this guy said last week. I can't wait to get to heaven uh, so I can uh, thank the founding fathers uh, for writing the Fourth Amendment, uh, the the Section 4 of the 25th Amendment uh, as perfectly and as eloquently as they did. And and I was just blown by the fact that that guy thinks, they think that a bunch of... (laughs) Filthy, stinking, rich, landowning slave holders are going to be in heaven. That that was the thing that blew my mind. And of course, that goes counter to what we know uh, the the uh, the Bible actually says about rich people getting into heaven. Um, harder for them to get into heaven than uh, a camel passing through the eye of a needle because they won't let go of their wealth. But again, it is instructive to see and hear how these people think and how they valorize and mythologize uh, Americanness. That's really what this is. It is a religion to them. It's not, it, they're not, they call themselves Christians, but they are worshiping the idea, the concept of Americanness based on what these founding fathers did, these men who didn't give the same equal rights to women, uh, who owned other human beings, who were Africans and and the descendants of Africa and who had no problem, um, you know, going to war uh, and, and spreading imperialism and stealing resources from other countries and colonizing other people. Um, yeah. 
these are the people that the Democrats now are putting forth before us as saviors of this democracy. But we're going to move to another quick break. We will pick this up on the other side of it. Please stay with us. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay tuned. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Maurice Cook. And, you know, there is a lot of conjecture about these hearings, Maurice, about whether um, the uh, Justice Department, whether Merrick Garland will actually do anything with this evidence uh, that the uh, House Select Committee has amassed. We haven't even seen all of it. And and Representative Benny Thompson today, uh, earlier today during the hearing, actually said that their investigation, I think he he pointed out at least into Trump's pressure campaign uh, uh, toward the states to uh, um, uh, validate the fake electors is still ongoing. So they're still looking for more uh, information, more evidence. But I don't know. What are your thoughts about the uh, the ultimate outcome uh, of, of these hearings? I mean, none of us have crystal balls. We have no idea, you know, what, what the future holds. But what do you think the likelihood is? What's your gut feeling about what's going to come? legally uh, of these hearings in regard to Trump and the midterms and the presidential campaign? Well, I, I would say, you know, usually when I'm making my best guess, I I analyze what has happened prior and, and add context to what could potentially happen. And thus far, I have never seen Donald Trump pay any consequence for his behavior and any accountability for anything that he has has ever done. And so using that context, it is hard for me to bet that he would actually receive the justice he deserves based on those giving out justice. We shall see. Yeah, I... I would not advise anyone to hold their breath waiting for the outcome uh, of any any kind of legal action. And it's seditious conspiracy, the charge I was blanking out on a little bit earlier that Trump should have been charged with on January 7th, honestly. But here we are. And, you know, speaking of the Department of Justice and uh, uh, Merrick Garland, he visited Ukraine to discuss investigating so-called war crimes. Uh, uh, It's being reported that um, he went to discuss efforts to investigate war crimes with Ukraine's top prosecutor. Garland is making the unannounced visit uh, today uh, to meet with Prosecutor General uh, Irina Venedict. 
Tova, sorry, I'm sure I just butchered that name, um, to discuss U.S. and international efforts to help Ukraine, quote, identify, apprehend and prosecute those individuals involved in war crimes and other atrocities in Ukraine, end quote. Now, I'm... I, I, I don't know everything. I, OK, I don't know anything about the law. I am not a lawyer. I don't know any legal stuff. I can just string some sentences together really well and can follow a logical train of thought. But isn't there an entire like legal international protocol that countries follow to identify and prosecute war crimes, Maurice? I, d- does this kind of thing even need to happen where the attorney general of one country goes to meet with the top uh, prosecutor or whatever in another country and they get together and make these decisions? I'm Am I confused on how this works? Well, you're confused in the sense that you are neglecting to talk about the elephant in the room as an empire, a declining empire using performance and symbolism to generate some form of, of a stick of a, of a, of a, a consequence to a regime that they don't agree with. And so that's the part that, 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 you, you know, I understand why you, you're neglecting to, to, to bring up, but at the end of the day, and I, I too, like you, I have no, I'm not a lawyer. I have no idea about, you know, kind of the, the legal paths to having our, you know, uh, attorney general uh, meet with, with, uh, you know, the, the, what is the equivalent of the Justice Department over in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, that does not sound like that is normal protocol. And you would think the United Nations and other kind of global entities um, that represent multiple countries would be involved in this process, but it seems like the U.S. squeezed them out and and are dealing with it directly, which just seems like a gross, uh, you know, gross um, representation power to me. And, you know, I really feel like this also represents the isolation of the U.S. and Ukraine and its and and, uh, the U.S. and EU allies in this mess they created in Ukraine, using Ukraine to fight uh, the U.S. Cold War, which is now a hot war against Russia. I think that's what this reflects, because if. Russian soldiers had committed uh, the more than 10,700 potential war crimes that Ukrainian prosecutors are claiming. I mean, I'm pretty sure somebody at the U.N. would have said boo about it. But but nothing. This is all the U.S. and Ukraine colluding together to cook, literally cook the war books on war crimes. I think as I'm, I'm speaking, I'm, I'm realizing that as this war is dragging on, it is becoming more unpopular, both in the United States and in Ukraine. And I think that this seems to me to be one of those cynical political moves uh, that uh, empires like the U.S. uh, makes when it wants to try to uh, flip the table, try to boost uh, uh, the approval 
of of a really bad move that the people in uh, uh, its country are kind of catching on to and are getting tired of, Maurice, because I I cannot imagine that people hearing that the Biden administration has sent fifty four billion dollars to Ukraine, uh, a lot of it to defense contractors here in the U.S., but for weapons for Ukraine. Part of that money was sent to Ukraine to prop up their economy. Part of that money was sent to prop up Ukraine uh, workers' pensions. And poor people here in this country get nothing. So I I think that this is one of those um, uh, conveniently timed secret trips that would just happen to be announced uh, uh, by the press to 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 shore up uh, what what I am sure are are uh, uh, flagging uh, ratings uh, or or uh, uh, um, what, what do I want to call it? People in the U.S. Uh, are no longer as full-throatedly in support of this war in Ukraine anymore because $54 billion to Ukraine when we've got people living on the streets in this country. Yeah, that's not adding up for a lot of people, Maurice. And, and I would say that's absolutely correct. And I'm not even sure if it's about the people who live on the streets because good times, bad times, this country seems to be fine with the United States citizens dying um, on the street because they have nowhere to live. But I will say, it, it, you know, it, what is hitting the average um, American is when they go to the grocery store. What is hitting the quote-unquote average American is when they go to the gas station. These things, what is hitting, you know, the, the slightly above average American when they go um, to try to purchase a home is the rising interest rate. What is hitting the above average American is the the, the downfall of the stock market um, and now crypto. And so these issues, these financial um, challenges are impacting a, a broad swath of people. And it makes sense that the continued investment into these foreign affairs that have nothing to do with the well-being of those who pay for it, um, or their popularity is waning. And the Biden administration knows this, and all, you know this this neoliberal co- collaboration um, with the United States and the EU. They know this, and so they need ways to keep people's attention and and proving that this is this 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 form of investment is of benefit, even though they can barely pay. Tank of gas. Mm. You know, and speaking of the the economic pain that people are uh, experiencing, even as they they are hearing on the nightly news every night, the amount of money that is being sent to Ukraine in some way that they're not getting Medicare. Uh, a study was done. And uh, shows that Medicare could have saved up to three point six 
billion with a B, $3.6 billion in 2020 if it bought generic drugs at the prices that were paid by billionaire entrepreneur Mark Cuban's drug company. Now, the study from researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, published in the journal Annals of Internal Medicine, suggests <laughs> inefficiencies in the way Medicare currently pays for generic drugs. Now, now I, I, I don't think this is a full-throated endorsement of Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drug Company because that's still a capitalist venture. Uh, we're still having to pay uh, a, a private corporation money for prescriptions. But it's worth noting, Maurice, that uh, the company was launched online and at the start of this year, uh, it seeks to simplify the convoluted supply chain for drugs and offer savings to consumers. It offers Commonly used generic drugs at 15% markup plus a $3 dispensing fee and $5 shipping fee. And even with all that, oh, and it doesn't accept insurance, meaning that, you know, people pay out of pocket, which is that's why it's a capitalist venture. Of course, he's going to make money. But the fact that even with a 15 percent markup and a three dollar dispensing fee, Medicare could have saved three point six billion dollars if they did the same thing he did. And and I, I just I think that's not an inefficiency. That's a crime, Maurice. I, I really feel like that is a crime. Well, the people who are making money off of the status quo, they their interests are, are being served, and they clearly have more influence in our policy, you know, with our policymakers than than the influence of people, specifically seniors, struggling on fixed incomes to be able to afford the rising cost of prescription drugs. And I guess that was $3.6 billion that the federal government had to lose. And the accountants and the uh, financial uh, decision makers um, are, are, are Congress. They're the ones who, who are ultimately responsible uh, for making sure our investments are sound. They, they probably aren't hurt whatsoever. And not enough of their constituents um, have been complaining enough about them because those that would complain are, are using all of their capacity just to survive, to be able to afford, you know, the, the, the medicine that they need to survive. And, and this is why we keep going around in circles. And until we organize and build capacity from the ground up, this will not change. Mm. And, you know, what else is a crime? is the response of the officers in Uvalde. And, I, and I've been saying for a couple of days that this is a terrible, terrible way for people to find out that the institution of policing does not exist to protect us, that the police know that they have no constitutional obligation to protect us. Well, more information has come out about the Uvalde police response. Uh, apparently, police officers with rifles and at least one ballistic shield were in uh, a hallway at Robb Elementary School around 19 minutes after the gunman entered the classrooms. Uh, the Austin and Mar American statement reported 
that the timeline was based on documents it received following the May 24th attack that killed 19 children and two teachers. Um, there were reports that came out, Maurice, uh, where uh, that 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 disputed the cops account that they tried to open the doors where the gunman had locked the doors. Well, now the reports have come out that none of the doors were locked. They, they just they could have opened them um, and, and lots of other things that were disputed. There were a, there was a report uh, that noted, I think it was in The New York Times that noted that there were cops in the building um, uh, within three minutes of the gunman going in. They could have uh, shot him when he was outside and they didn't, you know, for fear of of shooting children. I I guess that's understandable. But, you know, again, this is not, you know, people will look at this and some people will diminish uh, this because they are cop apologists and they need to uphold the institution's legitimacy in the system and what it does in protecting property and, you know, always, always being on the side of the cops. But I mean, this is and and their, their criticism will be, well, there were some mistakes made and there were some inefficiencies. But again, I think, Maurice, this is not an inefficiency. What happened, the way the cops didn't respond in Uvalde, it's not a it's not an inefficiency um, and it's it's not a bug in the system. It seriously is a feature, but it is a crime. It's absolutely a crime. And, you know, when it comes to the cop apologists, I tell you, it'll be a bright, sunny, 80 degree day, no cloud in the sky. And they will say it is a thunderstorm outside. They are liars. They are opportunists who understand the level of financial investment the state puts into the institution of the police, and they do not want anything to change. And, you know, I cannot help but be particularly, I don't think angry is the word, because now, you know, the Evalde Police Department and the city of Evalde have hired a private uh, law firm to defend them. Now, I'm guessing that they're using public funds to pay this private law firm. And they are using public funds to pay this private law firm to keep public records from the public. And and they did this in response to people putting in requests for the public information in regard to this horrific massacre and the police lack of response to it. But, you know, everything that we have talked about this afternoon, Maurice, it's all connected. As as Sean says all the time, none of the things that we have talked about that are serious problems that we face, they are not bugs in the system. They are features of the system. They are the system. And when you talked about organizing from the ground up, Maurice, I think this is the key. It's obviously the key. It is clearly what we need to do. But see, there's so much hard work that is required in doing that. There's so much face-to-face uh, communication. And we've gotten away from that, but obviously because of COVID, of course. But listen, we can continue to do those kinds of things safely because, you see, our lives depend on it. And I'm not going to say now because our lives have 
always depended on organization. The kind of organization that we have to do where we do get into a room with people in our communities, people we live with, people we work with, people we go to church with, our friends, our family members, and talk about these issues and raise the internal contradictions and talk about the politics. That's absolutely what was done to create the Black Power Movement. It's what was done to to carry out things like the Montgomery bus boycott that lasted more than a year. And it is absolutely the kind of thing we need to do today, continually, because this empire is falling. The question is, what are we organized to do with it, with the ashes? But we're going to leave it there for today. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. Until then, peace. By any means necessary.